I really liked listening to the bloopers that you gave us, mm-hmm. particularly the part where Steph really liked Hopebot. <laughs> Hopebot! Yeah, you made that sound when you said it. <laughs> I love Hopebot. Uh, I'm always on brand. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. Hi, Chris. Hi, Steph. How are things going? Things are going very well. Uh, been on vacation for the past couple days. I'm sort of still on vacation now, but I decided to come in and record one of these fun bike sheds. I'm not sure if that's an awesome vacation or awful. <laughs> uh, I'm loving it. It's been delightful. Uh, I'm taking some time away. My wife and I have just been going on little adventures. We went for a hike yesterday, went out to dinner, um, very much a staycation style thing. But although we did go up to Portland for a few days and visit some friends up in uh, Portland, Maine specifically, they have a lot of breweries up there. Yeah, yeah, I've heard. I haven't been to nearly all of them, but I know there's like cool little like postcard looking maps that you can buy that will then highlight all the different breweries so you can check them off and get them stamped as you go there. Do you have one of those? No, that sounds like a dangerous day. There's too many of them. Oh, yeah. No, I don't think you're supposed to do in a day. This is supposed to be like a a journey. (laughs) That would be a very aggressive day. (laughs) Very aggressive day. Uh, At this point, uh, I have some friends who've lived up there. So I've been going for years and I've been to a lot of the breweries. So I kind of at this point just hang out with my friends. And one of my friends owns a winery, uh, 1820 Wineries, which is rhubarb-based wine. So that's a thing that's true about me and my friends. (laughs) What is a rhubarb? Is it a root? Is it a fruit? Uh, I believe it's a root vegetable, but okay. it tends to be very bitter. But in this, like the wine actually comes out fantastic. And if I didn't know it was rhubarb wine, then I wouldn't know. It's delightful and sweet. And anyway, this is a weird podcast about <laughs> rhubarb wineries now. Well, thank you for coming in on your vacay to record with me today. So to kind of also circle back to some of the news that you shared recently, this is your first week that you are no longer a, an official thought botter, but you are staying on with the podcast. And you and I are going to continue to record as normal until, I don't know, we'll see where it takes us. Yeah, for as long as you'll have me. But I've certainly enjoyed this part of the adventure, and I'm glad that we'll get to continue having conversations. So yeah, for anyone out there that was concerned that I was leaving, you no longer need to be concerned. I was very much one of those people. I was initially panicking at the thought of the idea of continuing this on without you, although there's so many other like wonderful voices here at ThoughtBot to also elevate, but still, I've had so much fun doing this with you that I was certainly one of those individuals panicking. So I'm extremely grateful and excited that you're staying on and that we'll continue to be co-hosts together. Thanks. Yeah. it's uh, Like I said, it's been a ton of fun and uh, I look forward to continuing on with it. Well, since you're here, I have a specific question for you. It's around how we use memoization. And I've noticed in the number of different projects that I've been in, I feel like that other people or other developers are using memoization more heavily than I will often reach for it. And I'm curious about your thoughts and how often that you'll reach for memoization. Like, what are some of the rules that you'll follow? What are some of the guidelines for when you decide to implement and decide to cache that value? When do you reach for a memoization? Ooh, um, interesting question. I think I may be one of those people that falls into the dangerous camp. But before we dig in, do we want to uh, describe memoization just to make sure we're at least talking about the same thing? 
Yeah, perfect. I was just thinking that that I brought up this topic, and then I was like, "Oh, wait, we should we should also talk about what it is first, just in case." So, memoization. I'm talking about the sense of when you are making an expensive API call or perhaps an expensive query, and then you want to cache that value. So, as soon as you execute that code once, then you're going to cache that value, likely to an instance variable. And then next time that you make a call to that method again, then you're going to reuse that cache value. So you are saving yourself the additional work of let's say the expensive query example, where if you run it once and then you access that value again, you won't execute that query a second time, and so on. Yep, that、uh, essentially matches with my definition. And interestingly, the main thing I was interested to what you were going to say was you talked about it sort of in terms of Ruby, which caching and memoization broadly are they exist outside of the Ruby world. But when I think about them, I think about them most in that context. I think I have the clearest picture of when and how to use them, and I reach for them much more in Ruby than I do say in JavaScript. So that's an interesting thing that I don't know. Maybe we can poke at a little bit. But thinking about them in the context of Ruby, just because that's the easiest one, I use them a lot, like very often, perhaps too much so. And so when I say a lot, often I build classes. Those classes take in some data in the initialize method, and then any computation, anything that's related to them, I'll define in a private method, so below the private keyword, and I will often memoize the value of those. Sort of things, just sort of as a habit more than anything, and I think the reason for it is so. Like often, memoization is thought of as a performance optimization, which can be true, but generally, I'm not that worried about performance. Or I try not to optimize for performance early. I try to have general good performance practices, but don't start caching early. Don't use that as just like, yeah, let's we're, we're going to need caching because caching is fraught with peril. So it is less about any performance-related things for me, but it's more because I prefer to work in a world that has immutable data. And by memoizing, it's almost an assertion that this data must be immutable, or idempotent is perhaps a better word, but that I don't expect this data to change over time. Generally, when I'm making these classes, I don't even introduce adder writers for my private instance variables. I'm trying to—that's just some data that I have, and then I can introduce methods that might be computations on it, and I'll often memoize that because I want to treat it as sure. I can memoize whatever, and it's almost. A communication tool as much as anything else. That said, I don't think this is necessarily a good idea. The thing that I'm doing, I want immutable data, but I'm working in Ruby, and so I try and fake it, and I don't know that that's a good thing. So I think that's perfect for sort of like what I've been pondering about the memoization pattern and some of the thoughts I've had around it. Because often when I am reading code, if I see that something has been memoized, that communicates to me, and I'm like, oh, we're using this twice somewhere. Because I very much, as you'd mentioned, often will see it as a performance concern or performance enhancement. And so when I see that it's only being used in one place, then it makes me wonder. I'm like, oh, well, we're only referencing this one time, so it's not for performance reasons that we're memoizing this value. And then use the word idempotent. I'd love to poke at that a little bit because I'm curious if you have a class that you're instantiating, and you memoize that, so then it feels a bit more like you said that immutable structure or that class that you're getting back. But if you don't memoize it and you're calling it more than once, does it change, or are you concerned that it's going to change, or is it? I'm still curious about that sort of like thinking that you have. Ideally, it shouldn't change. Like there are things that will change if I'm computing the current time or something like that, or if I'm fetching records from a database. Even those within the context of a request response lifecycle in Rails, I view that as like that shouldn't change within the context of this. Like if I make that same request ten milliseconds later, I shouldn't have a new count of something. 
I find it much easier to think about systems in functional immutable terms. And so sort of reaching for that and wanting to live in that world, even though I don't when I'm writing Ruby. So is it more of a style preference? I'm still trying to understand like the benefits of like outside of the style and wanting to live in that functional world. Like what are the benefits in your mind from taking that approach? I think it is stylistic, although it sort of informs that the type of code that I want. So I occasionally come into code bases where we have adder writers everywhere and we're constantly mutating these instance variables or we're doing plus equals assignment or branching assignment. So we have a value and then we're conditionally reassigning it within that. All those sort of things I want to get rid of. And so instead, I prefer the style of coding where I just have values and then functions that operate on those values. But there isn't a concept of at a point in time. What's the value at a point in time? It's like, it's whatever the value is. Uh, this is very much like an Elm or a Haskell where like the equal sign doesn't mean assignment. It means equality. This A equals four. A will always equal four backwards and forwards in time. That is true. I find that way easier to think about than A right now could equal four, but if we get a callback, then it might have been reassigned to be this other value. And I've just found so much uh, happiness in that simplification that I try and bring it along with me. But I would say it very much is a stylistic thing and frankly, kind of a force fit. And I look at the code that I write in Ruby and I'm still like, yeah, I like that, but maybe that's just my lens on it. And I'm not doing this all the time also. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm now getting into the defensive space of like, I feel like this is fine. I feel like it's, <laughs> I don't know that there's a ton of benefit from it, but it's closer to the code that I want to write and the code that I want to work with. Less assignment, less mutation, less mutability throughout. Certainly some, you need some values to change over time, but actually kind of that's why I have the database. I change stuff in there, but not my classes per se. Well, and that's kind of perfect. It's funny when you were saying that you're feeling like a little defensive of that particular stance of how much you use it. But I'm really intrigued because I'm on the flip side where I'm like, I don't know, like, should I be using this more? Because I am so from the education of this is really for performance. And if you're going to access this more than once, then yes, we want to memoize or at least consider memoization. So then it leads me down the path. And I'm like, okay, well, what if we sort of like table that thought. And then if we use memoization more often for the reasons that you're saying, because I also very much like living in a functional world and knowing that I have more of that equality of something that I'm referencing. And if there is other code that's going to say like mutate this class that I've instantiated, I'm always working with that one object instead of creating new ones or maybe running into some odd mutation bugs. So then from that perspective, it pushes me into the realm of like, okay, well, if I go down this path, what are the downsides of using memoization more often? Is there a slight performance hit for memoizing more frequently? Is it confusing to other developers if I do that? So I'm kind of in that space where I'm trying to push myself away from my current style of thinking to see, well, maybe I should do this more. Maybe. <laughs> do yeah. you know if there's a performance hit? I don't know about a performance hit. I know that the Ruby syntax is I'm pretty sure this is a design goal of the Ruby syntax is to be flexible around memoization. So the at thing or equals blah. Instance variables are nil if they have not been initialized versus they are whatever value they have if they have been initialized. That's unique to instance variables. If you try and interact with any other word or keyword or anything like that, that's not going to happen. Uh, it actually gets a little bit weird, the fact that instance variables are always nil. So like you don't get a reference error, a name error, if you try and access an instance variable that hasn't been assigned yet. You just get the value nil. I really don't like that, actually, at the end of the day. But it's the feature of the language that makes memoization so straightforward. 
So I don't know of any actual performance hit associated with this. I think maybe the language just has it built in, so there's sort of a constant overhead, but we've, we're all paying that price anyway, so why not? Uh, I think the main thing that would concern me is memoization is a form of caching, and caching is one of those places that bugs hide all the time. That's a really good point. So that would put me back into the camp of where I feel like we're using the memoization pattern too much. Like if you're just referencing this value once, and by too much, I mean if you memoize something, but you only reference it once, but you still memoize it anyway, that's the one where I'm like, ah, it feels like we're we're reaching for a pattern that we just don't need here. And I'm not convinced of the benefits other there's the style preference of the functional approach that you'd mentioned. But outside of the style preference, I'm not sure there's a benefit. There's also the slight... Concern's a strong word, but there is also the style of prefixing the instance variable with an underscore to indicate that this instance variable should not be accessed directly. And in most cases, that's not a big deal because I think most Ruby developers aren't going to reach for that instance variable directly. But there are some cases where that instance variable will leak. So if you have that instance variable in a controller, it leaks over to your views. And that could be something that could lead to like a bug. So if you have this instance variable and you call it user, but then you also initialize another user instance variable in your controller and then it gets becomes conflicting. So I think there's still in my mind more reasons to not overuse memoization than to use it more often. Interesting. Your invoking of the idea of controllers here does add a layer to this, but mostly controllers and views and instance variables are weird in Rails. And so they're an area where I would basically just extract everything. Like extract as much as I can from controllers because they behave differently, because there's special stuff going on there. And so any real logic I want to extract out, I probably would not use memoization in a controller because they have such weird behavior. Like when you look at the methods, you're never going to call more than one of the methods, like def new, def update, create whatever. You're only going to interact with one of those, I'm pretty sure. By definition, that's how it's supposed to work. Although now that I think about it, <laughs> if you say like render the other action, would it actually be using the same instance of the controller? And if so, what's the, I kind of want to ignore all of those oddities and just be like, I don't know, I make objects, they're fine. Controllers are weird, views are weird. The instance variable passing is extremely weird and something that I keep searching for a way to get away from in my Rails time, but. There are some interesting ways I've seen other folks handle it where they will explicitly like initialize or pass like a hash to the view. So that way they're getting around the instance variables. That seems like a pretty neat approach. That's not something I've really implemented or, or tried, but I've seen it and it looks pretty cool. Yeah, I think the main instance variable that you'll run into from a controller that I know you and I are probably use the most is like current user or something, which is unwrapped inside of a method. But that's something that we would memoize at the controller level, but I also appreciate the idea that then extracting everything outside of the controller, so that way we're working with those objects instead of accessing those instance variables directly. But I think it's really common that folks are gonna do that. So while you and I may have a specific approach, I feel like most of the projects I work on aren't necessarily going to take that approach. So they could run into the oddity of the memoization of having an instance variable leak into their view. That's interesting that you bring up the current user thing, because that sort of flips my thoughts on its head. And actually, you're just saying a lot of things that are causing me to think a lot about the way I develop software. I don't know that I feel like I have a good, correct, defensible answer on this one. I do the thing that makes sense to me, and I understand the biases that are leading me towards that type of development. But even within a Rails code base, like there's still going to be weird edge cases and reasons that I might or might not. And caching is so complicated. So I don't know. It's an interesting one. Maybe I'll think more and we can come back and revisit in a future episode. But uh, I like the question. 
Yeah, that's sort of where I'm at too, where I'm still in the camp of where I feel like the pattern's still overused just because I'm seeing more benefits to being cautious with using that pattern. And perhaps I should clarify too, when I was talking about the instance variable leaking into the view, even prefixing it with an underscore, it's still accessible in the view. Mm -hmm. It's still going to be there, but that underscore is a style to indicate that it shouldn't be used. And it's also less likely that someone's going to reach for it if they see there's that underscore. So it's more of like a danger, danger kind of warning. Don't use this. is how I see the underscore. But yeah, that's cool. I was just curious with your thoughts on it. I think that helped. I think it still means I'm in the same camp I started in. (laughs) I do like, though, that this is the closest we've come to the disagreement fight episode that we talked about. This was a mild, slightly on different sides, but pretty close, frankly, and have an agree to disagree understanding. (laughs) Very peaceful. Like, these are our different thoughts and we'll continue on our own way. We're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, ExpressVPN. Okay, so we all know how a VPN protects your privacy and security online, right? But it can also take your TV watching game to the next level. You can use a VPN to unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries. For example, you can use ExpressVPN to binge Doctor Who on UK Netflix. It's so simple. Just fire up the ExpressVPN app, change your location to the UK, refresh Netflix, and that's it. See, ExpressVPN hides your IP address and lets you control where you want sites to think you're located. You can choose from almost 100 different countries, so just think about all the Netflix libraries you can go through. Love anime? Use ExpressVPN to access Japanese Netflix and be spirited away. But it's not just Netflix. ExpressVPN works with any streaming service. Hulu, BBC, YouTube, you name it. There are hundreds of VPNs out there, but ExpressVPN is ridiculously fast. There's never any buffering or lag, and you can stream in HD, no problem. ExpressVPN is also compatible with all your devices, phones, media consoles, smart TVs, and more. So you can watch what you want on the go or on the big screen, wherever you are. If you visit expressvpn.com slash bikeshed, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Support the show, watch what you want, and protect yourself at expressvpn.com slash bikeshed. Thanks again to ExpressVPN for sponsoring today's episode. Cool. Well, shifting away from that, uh, frankly, excellent question that's going to probably keep me up at night a little bit moving forward. But anyway, that's aside from the point. Uh, I did want to revisit a topic that we had talked about a few episodes back, which was around snapshot tests. So I had talked about their usage in the code base that I had been working on and, the, frankly, the complexity and the pain that we had felt around them, specifically using snapshot tests for React components. So we've got a component, we give it some data, and then via snapshot testing, we're able to render that out to particular, it's basically a plain text format that represents all of the DOM nodes that that object would render, that React component would render to. Recently, I think it was last week, Will Hall, developer on the projects, deleted all of the snapshot tests. It's interesting to see how you have those sort of conversations in an organization, especially one that's a little bit larger and has different engineering teams that are still ideally working off of you know sort of the same approach to development. And so he opened a whip pull request, actually doing the work of deleting, which I really like the idea of doing the thing, not just opening like an issue and saying, let's have a conversation, but starting with, well, here's what it would look like if we did it. But then explaining his reasoning and and the logic and all of that, and then basically collecting feedback from various people on the pull request. And it went really well. It was a very good discussion. There was a little bit of back and forth with some people saying, you know, I found some value in these, but overall the team collectively decided that there was not sufficient value. And in fact, there was enough cost and overhead that they were slowing the team down and not really providing sufficient benefits. So they are gone now. 
Look at us. The Leeton test. Who'd have thought? (laughs) I was very conflicted. A lot of my time on that project, I spent deleting tests and things. But we're obviously huge fans of tests, but tests are only useful when they're useful. And in fact, they're detrimental. They have a cost. And so they have to be sufficiently more useful than that cost to stay around. They got to earn their way like everybody else. I love two of the things that you highlighted. One, I love that form of communication and pushing something forward is to demonstrate this is what it would look like and then collect feedback from there so then folks can chime in with their opinions. And it was really cool in this case where other people also said, yes, I'm feeling pain from this. And then two, the idea like tests very much have to earn their place. Like we very much love our tests and we want them, but we want them to always benefit us. And if there starts to feel too much pain from them, then we're very open to getting rid of them and finding a new way to make sure that we feel confident in our code. So that feels awesome that y'all removed a painful source in the code base that will help with development. And then it sounds like it's something that you could always rerun. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but if you decide that you do miss having those, that you could rerun something that would rebuild all those snapshot tests? Well, the snapshot tests all are explicit tests that happen to have the serialization thing that happens. But you write a test that says, expect component with these props when rendered to match snapshot. And so you set, you write a test case that is, I expect this one to match snapshot. I expect with these other props for it to match the snapshot. And so you would need to go back and add those. But they're very easy to add. That's one of the facets of them that's really nice is they give you sort of a smoke test of, does this thing render at all or does it throw an error? And then it gives you, does it render to the right thing? And I think that's where the complications come in because it's so, so hard to actually look at the diff of a rendered component, especially with you know, generated class names and wrapping context divs and et cetera, et cetera. It just becomes darn near impossible for an individual developer who maybe didn't work on that feature to look at it and be like, well, this changed, but good change or bad change? Not sure. And so in that sense, they were not providing the utility that we needed. I have noticed that when I'm writing my test, I'm very thoughtful about how is this going to fail and what can I read when it fails. So when you mentioned that it's very difficult, that when that test does fail, it's not very easy or friendly to read through that test and figure out why it's failing. And so a a number of the expectations that I write, I'll take that into consideration. I think one of the more obvious examples that I I do more frequently is so if I'm comparing that I'm getting back a particular set of objects or data, maybe it's from like an API endpoint, instead of comparing that list of objects on the left to like a list of objects on the right, I will map out and maybe collect like all the object, if it has a title, like the object titles or the object IDs. So that way I'm comparing those two things and then my failure message will show me exactly which IDs or which titles are missing from the list that were supposed to be there, or if there are extra elements that are in there that weren't supposed to be there, and that's just so much easier. Otherwise, if it's like, this list of objects didn't match this list of objects, I'm like, thanks, I can't read that. (laughs) Thanks, I hate it. (laughs) Thanks, I hate it. (laughs) So that's been one of the ways I've noticed that I will often write my test to help myself for when it fails with that style. Obviously, we talk about test-driven development all the time, and I think there is tons of value in that, like putting the pressure on the system and seeing like, man, I have to I have to make like 10 different objects to write this test. Maybe something's wrong here. But then the flip side of what does this look like when it fails and what's the, what is that workflow going to look like? And thinking about that and making sure that that's as positive as possible is great. And it's part of the reason that I love RSpec so much. RSpec does such a good job of like providing matchers that allow us to be more expressive like match array as a matcher instead of explicitly saying it equals this array be like I want it to have these items and there's a matcher for that and you can write custom matchers and do all these wonderful things 
Oh, RSpec, you're great. I feel like this is another one of those moments where we're like, thanks, RSpec. It <laughs> sure thanks, is. Thanks, technology. You're doing a great job. We appreciate specific you. Specific technology worked on very hard by just not ambient technology in the air, but specific. Thanks, RSpec. I like that this is part of our brand where we <laughs> thank certain libraries through different episodes. <laughs> we might be too nice, but I too like that this is part of our brand. I think they deserve the praise. I don't think we can be too nice there. <laughs> Along the lines of just sort of like helpful things in the world, I discovered or I rediscovered something today. I have a personal list of like today I learned like little notes and for some reason today I was flipping through it and I rediscovered something that I hadn't seen in a while and it's the active record columns hash method. And it's something that I don't use very often, but it's really neat because it will print out details, uh, the column objects for like a specific table. And you can also reference for a specific column for that table. So you could, if you have like a table that's called widgets, you could do widget.columns with an S columns hash. And without any arguments, it will return a list of objects that represent each column and then tell you details about that column. So some of the stuff that it'll tell you, it'll tell you like the name of the column. It'll also tell you if it has any uh, non-null constraints, if there's a default value. So it's just some like higher level stuff, which is useful for me in this case, since I'm working on a project where we're not committing a schema or a structure file to the code base. So instead of having to hop into a Postgres session, I can use this through Rails console. And it's been pretty neat. It's been helpful when I'm just like, oh, I can't remember, does this column have like a non-null constraint? Instead of hopping into Postgres or running migrations or something like that to then have that schema file available to me, I can do this instead. Oh, that's cool. I don't think I have worked with columns hash before. Although it's interesting that it's just part of the big like active model. These big active model classes just have everything. And so this is one of the everythings that they have, but super useful and I like it. Could see it being very useful at least. Yeah, it's been pretty nifty. Coming back to it, as you've experienced more time with it, how's it been going without the structure or schema file? Honestly, it's been fine. Interesting. Yeah, I, I think that's the biggest pain point that I have felt is when I have a question about the structure of the database, hopping into the Postgres session, which is fairly trivial. It's just different than what I'm typically used to doing. So that's not a big hurdle at all. It's just changing my workflow. Yeah, honestly, I haven't really felt any pain from it. And I'm starting to get accustomed to to like reviewing PRs where there's a migration, but there's not also the schema change that I can see to go along with it. That's starting to feel more comfortable and just sort of like part of the normal flow. So I'm in this everything is fine, but in like truly everything's fine, not the world's actually burning around me like the cartoon. <laughs> everything is fine. <laughs> Uh, I mean, it may be burning. You just don't know. There may be a secret wildfire that's raging towards you. And you're going to be like, oh, man, we don't have the schema. There's no way out now. But I don't know. Sounds cool to know that that's going fine. And yeah. that you now have this new uh, trick in your tool belt to uh, work around it. Or frankly, that that's going to be generally useful. So. Yeah, that's been part of it. I have discovered some other things where I feel like I'm missing that quick accessible file to then find other ways to get the information that I'm used to seeing very easily. And that's the other nice part, too, is if we change our mind and decide that we do want this file back, we can always regenerate it and recommit to the code base. So it feels like a very easy like opt out with an opt back in option. So I know you've been on vacation, but knowing how you vacation, have you done any fun things with any new languages or frameworks? Only a little bit. Frankly, I've been doing a good job of being on vacation, but I poked a small amount and I had been poking previously as well. I'm spending some time with Inertia JS. Uh, that's my new 
thing that I'm most focused on. I think like Elm is the other thing that I'm super interested in, but I think I have a better understanding of Elm and where it fits and what it's great at, which is a lot and all those sort of things. But inertia is more of a question mark for me, but a question mark that I'm very excited about. So I can give a quick teaser of how things are going. Uh, awesome. I really like it. I'm super into this. I want to continue pursuing it a lot. There's a bunch of questions and sort of rough edges is too strong of a word, but things that I will want to figure out to use this in production and, and as a real thing. But overall, I'm so excited by the sort of promise that it offers of taking complexity out of the client side and bringing it back to the server side. Because I believe that's where the complexity should be. You implement it. It's not once because you would have to do multiple front ends. But I think managing client-side state is just so complicated and so difficult. And we've opted into more and more of that over time, is my experience. And I think that's potentially problematic. And so the simplification that inertia brings with only a tiny, tiny degradation in experience, it's basically just a little bit of latency on any interaction that happens with the server. But there's correctness that falls out of that that... I'm personally willing to make that trade-off. So like I said, I need to spend a bunch more time with it, and I plan to, and I will report back with more information. But initial explorations, very good. I am super excited to hear more, especially when you're talking about pushing more stuff back to the server side, because that's not where I thought the conversation would go. So yeah, I can't wait. But yeah, like I said, this is still very uh, early in my exploration, so I will likely be reporting back more in future weeks. But for now, we can leave it at tentatively very excited. Uh, but shifting over, we uh, haven't done this in a while, so we're going to go for a quick listener question. So this question comes to us from Martin, and Martin says, You addressed using Tuple to do remote pairing. We're very happy users of VS Code Live Share at work. We use Slack plus video and audio sharing to do live share for code. The nice thing is you don't need to battle some weird editor keyboard and such. It's all yours. As an Emacs user, I've been able to configure VS Code to do all the basic stuff. Works great, took some days of configuring, rather than trying to connect into someone else's strange bindings. Uh, would be interested to hear your thoughts about it. My desk neighbor is a Vim user and got most of his stuff working in Vim as well, including NerdTree navigation, etc. Our pairing sessions are great. So I think the question is generally about pairing tools, maybe a little bit specific to VS Live Share. But yeah, what do you think? What are your thoughts? Yeah, so my overall sense of that question comes from the idea of like, how do you bridge that different editor barrier that each of us are facing, especially since a number of us have our very like custom built bindings and workflows and editors that we like to use. So then as we want to pair with someone else, how do we spend that time being very productive versus trying to learn someone else's system? And that one is an interesting challenge. And VS Code does seem to have a really nice option. I haven't used the VS Code live share. Have you used it? I have used that, although I haven't used Tuple, so we're sort of two sides of the aisle here. Uh, the VS Code Live Share thing was amazing, but also weird on Canny Valley, where I wasn't sure who was seeing what at which points and who was driving and in which, like, whose computer are we on, actually? Because it's basically both VS Code sessions are seeing the same thing. Technically, it's running on one person's machine and then being shared across. Uh, so I actually had a little bit of difficulty understanding what was going on, but it blended the sort of seams so well that it just felt like we were on one computer with a little bit of confusion. But I think it's a really interesting technology and being able to have, like on my side, I had my Vim key bindings and the other person on the other side doesn't use Vim, but that was fine. We both were able to interact with the document and I did it with Vim key bindings. They did it with the default VS Code settings and that just worked. So that alone is incredibly interesting to me. But some of the other stuff was a little bit odd, I'd say, just because it does that weird blended mode thing. 
Yeah, that part sounds really nice that each person can have their own specific configurations and key bindings. The part that I'm intrigued about with VS Code, having not used it, is the fact that you can't see anything outside of the editor. So when I'm pairing with someone, we'll often go to Trello to look at the ticket, or we'll go to Chrome or something to do some further investigation or to run stuff locally. So that part seems like it would be hindering to my work and something that I want to share with the other person when we're pairing. So that one feels like it's still missing a little bit of the important features that I would want, while Tuple on the other side does give me all of that. But then we are using one person's machine. So if I'm the one that I'm driving the session, then someone is using my particular setup and my machine and what I have. So I'm very conscientious of that. And I tend to defer to who is it easier for us to defer to. So if someone is accustomed to using VS Code or Atom and they don't use Vim key bindings, it's going to be hard for them to jump into my environment. And it's going to be easier for me to go to their environment. So I tend to favor the other person if they're not using Vim or have a setup that I can use and it'd be harder for them to use mine. Yeah, definitely don't force Vim on people. I definitely agree with all of that to a couple of little points. And what you were saying about not having access to Trello or not like having a shared Trello thing, that definitely feels very, very real. And like a thing that would be subtle, but would show up a bunch of times and just feel like a a differentiation. The one positive that they do have is if you start the server process for whatever app you're working on within uh, VS Code's terminal, I believe they have the ability to do sort of port forwarding over whatever magic tunnel they're sending all of the other stuff through. And so on both sides, you can essentially make web requests to it like it's localhost. So localhost is for that one port is shared across, which is interesting. So that bridges a little bit of the like, oh, what I can't actually see the app, what's going on on there if you're just doing an editor code share. As an example, a tool that I often use is Teammate, which is Tmux, but with fancy session sharing built in, but it has the same problem and doesn't have a solution around localhost port forwarding. So I'm sure there's a command I could run in SSH to do weird port forwarding, but I'd need like a remote server to bounce it off of, or I don't know, a bunch of stuff that I do not understand. But the tuple side of things does solve that with the trade-off that you you do have to find that middle ground. Although I'll say as Vim users can often come and use my Vim at this point, but that was definitely not true five years ago. Like when I joined ThoughtBot, it was one of the things that I actually slowly got ground down of the the rough edges, the weird stuff in my Vim config. I can still have all my weird stuff that I want, but I just can't put it on default key bindings. That's the rule. Make it so that if someone were to come and try and use my Vim, it shouldn't be hostile to them if they know Vim. Hostile Vim. Yeah, Vim's generally <laughs> hostile enough, so I shouldn't make it worse. But like that idea of I've tried to move myself a little closer to that, but I'm similar to you where I'll hop to VS Code if that's the easiest thing for everyone. Yeah, I think one other thought that I have when it comes to pairing is while different editors and different settings can be considered a barrier, I also think it's really cool because part of the reason I want to pair with someone is I want to see what is your workflow? What makes you productive? What do you use? How do you set up Vim? How do you use VS Code? Like, what is it that you really love about this? Like, that's part of the reason that I'm really pairing with someone is because I want to see what tricks that they do that I can glean from them. And in return, if someone's pairing with me, maybe I'll do something that they get excited about and want to take back to their workflow. So part of me doesn't want to lose that where I still want to experience their workflow. And then I think it does lean into the idea that most of my pairing sessions, there's typically one person that's doing more driving and the other person is experiencing more verbal communication and helping and share ideas and we'll even talk through some of the code but then we will shift more frequently so if it's convenient enough or we'll find a way to make it convenient so if I'm writing code for like a good 30 or so minutes and then we can push it up and then pull it down on their machine and then work on their machine which I think could sound tedious but has worked well for me. 
Now, I think it's important to have that structure. I think everyone should always be able to type things into the editor, but the idea that one person is more driving, the other person is more navigator, and then also alternating that role, all of that feels critical to good pairing. Are there any other tools that you use on the regular with regard to pairing, or even the less regular? trying to think of all the stuff that I do use for pairing. Uh, so tuple is my default that I'll go to or a Slack call, although that's not really pairing. It's more if I'm reaching out to someone and getting help or they're helping me on something. Screen sharing, but you can do the little Technicolor wiggles and squiggle under the code and whatnot. I love the squiggles and the wiggles. Her I mom's need those. very good at those. That's such a great skill. Very good at squiggles. <laughs> Yeah, I absolutely love when I can like draw. That's super helpful for talking. Uh, But I'm trying to think of what else I use pairing wise. I think in the past, I've even used something uh, like tomato timer. Have you heard of that? Like the Pomodoro strategy, where just to make sure that we are rotating and I'm very conscientious, because I think it is easy to sort of get stuck with one person driving for too long, or the other person is, it's one of those awkward moments. It's like, oh, should we switch so you can drive? And the other person's like, no, it's fine. Like, And so I try to avoid that situation of just saying up front, like we're going to switch every X number of like however long we decide a session is. But I I can't think of any other tools that I use other than like mainly like how can I I share my environment with somebody else. I do want us to each have like, of course, keyboards, but also having like your own mouse is really nice. So that way someone can navigate. I'm a bit of a clean freak. So anytime I am pairing with someone, I tend to scrub down my desk and keyboards and everything because I want to make sure that they have a very like pleasant, like clean environment to work beside me. You want to make sure that they have a very pleasant, clean environment. (laughs) I want to make sure I have a very clean. (laughs) As someone who has been gifted cleaning supplies from you ever so graciously (laughs) and didn't feel at all insulted, I will say, no, it's great. It it is better. So. (laughs) Okay, moving through that one, uh, what tools do you use? Because I really can't think of any. I do a lot of my pairing in person. I've done less remote pairing, although I expect that that will change in the coming weeks. So this is a topic that might evolve for me. But so it's primarily screen shares. And frankly, they're somewhat awkward. When both folks are using Vim and Tmux, then I'll go into Tmux or Teammate specifically. It'll typically be Teammate with a screen share because Teammate's so low bandwidth that I can also have a screen share going, and that's not a problem. And we want to have voice in addition, so like it gets voice and all the other things, and Teammate does a great job of we're just in the same editor session now. But yeah, I think this is something I'm going to have to explore and, and figure out in the coming weeks. So I do appreciate what you said about being able to see the other person. I find that incredibly helpful. So I really like with Tuple and then also some of the other screen shares that I'd used in the past, uh, like Screen Hero and stuff, how you can always see the other person because I want to be able to see if they're talking or if they're about to talk or that just helps a lot with the communication to have a little bit of that body language if we're not side by side to see each other. There's also a really cool uh, ThoughtBot blog post that we have, how to get better at pair programming, where Ben Ferber worked on creating a effective pairing checklist that you can go through and sort of like set up your before session, your during session, and then your review after session of pairing. So I really enjoyed when Ben created that, and I will look back at that every so often just to remind myself of like all the pleasant pairing habits that I want to continue forward through each session. But it sounds like Martin's found a a really great flow that works for him and the other individuals that he's pairing with. So yeah, I think the main story is always be accommodating to the other person that you're pairing with and find a middle ground that works for each person and pair early and pair often. So thanks, Martin, for sending in that question. On that note, shall we wrap up? Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. 
The show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or a review in iTunes. It really helps other folks find the show. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed on Twitter. And I'm at Chris Toomey. And I'm at S. Vicari. Or you can reach us at hosts at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. Join our team dedicated to creating products people love to use. With open positions at our studios in Boston, New York, San Francisco, Austin, London, and Raleigh-Durham, come discover a better way to work.